0: Lisa Rodriguez Watson. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City Church. Um, we're, we're a few weeks into our fall sermon series uh, called Following Jesus. In this series, we're exploring, uh, well, this is going to be kind of straightforward, what it means to follow Jesus. <laughs> in the way of the cross. And Justin reminded us a few weeks ago that it's, it's not following in the sense that we use nowadays where it's like some sort of passive consumption um, of someone else's content with an occasional tap to show that, oh, that's kind of good. I like that. That's nice. Um, but following in the sense that Jesus meant it when he told it to his followers a couple thousand years ago. It's the same thing that that it means for us today. Following Jesus means becoming like Jesus. And that's the invitation that we're exploring over these next few weeks as we study this um, this section of Mark. Last week, Matthew um, had a great sermon. If you haven't heard it, I would encourage you to go back and either watch it on YouTube or listen to the podcast. Uh, Last week's sermon focused on Jesus taking those who were considered outsiders and making them insiders, that the grace of God was sufficient for those who were on the margins to be included. Um, This week, uh, I think we'll begin with a question of, uh, have you ever felt like you just don't understand? You've been in a situation where maybe you're new. (laughs) You're new to a job, you're new to a school, you're new to a city, you're new to a neighborhood. And man, as much as you want to try and understand, the reality is there's just too much newness, and you just can't understand. You want to, but you struggle to keep up with all the new information. We've all kind of been there, right? Admittedly, I am not a vast consumer of television. Most of you who are friends with me know I don't watch a ton of TV, but I do have a very favorite TV show. That TV show is Ted Lasso. And years before Ted Lasso was a thing, there was this SNL comedy sketch that actually kind of became Ted Lasso eventually. So I'm going to show a clip of this sketch and I think it's a great understand. Um, it's a great example of not understanding. So let, let's take a look. Excellent. So we can all sympathize with Ted a little, right? It's like he just keeps trying and not quite getting it. Um, and 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 it's funny, of course. It is. It's meant to be funny. Um, but sometimes when we're trying to understand. It doesn't always feel the best when we don't quite get it. And as we jump into the scripture, um, we're, we're moving into a scene where Jesus is, is actually trying to get his disciples to understand something. And he's pretty frustrated, actually. He's kind of passionate about it, and I think there's a little bit of desperation in his voice. Um, and that's actually at the end. But he asks the most important question at the end, so that's where we're gonna begin at the end. In verse 21, um, right there, he makes it plain. He says to his disciples, do you still not understand? It's like he's saying to them, don't you get it yet? And again, that frustration and earnestness in his voice because they've been with him. They've seen him perform miracles. They've had insider explanations to all the things that he's been saying to the crowds everywhere. And still they seem to miss the point. They just don't understand. And and I guess it's really important for for us to ask ourselves, what is it? What is it that he wants them to understand? He wants them to know that he is the sufficient one, that he is sufficient for what they need in whatever situation they find themselves in. So how did we get to that moment? Well, at the front part of the passage, Jesus and the disciples were in a Gentile territory in the region of the Decapolis. They were out in a remote part of the area, and a large crowd had gathered. Jesus had been teaching them for three days. Before he sends them home, he calls his disciples over and he says to them, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse along the way because some of them have come a long distance. And the disciples are kind of dumbfounded, I think. They, I imagine they look around at the landscape in the wilderness and they look at each other with questioning looks and then they just, say what they're thinking but where in this remote place can anyone find enough bread to feed them two quick observations here they look around at the remoteness of the place where there's seemingly nothing of use nothing helpful and then they determine that no one can provide a solution I wonder if some red flags are going off for some of us in the room about this, this kind of response. There certainly was for me when I was first reading this passage. Jesus asked the disciples a simple and very direct question. How many loaves do you have? He's not deterred by their insinuation that no one could possibly meet their need. He doesn't even come right out and say, hey, y'all. <laughs> I'm here, what do you mean no one? In fact, he doesn't even allude to himself at all. He asks them about them, and I love that. I wonder if it's because he wants them to understand that they're an important part of the story. They're an important part of the equation. They have a part to play in the great rescue and liberative story of God. Jesus is at the center of the story, but the disciples play a crucial role. The same is true for us. And after the disciples respond that they have seven loaves, Jesus has the crowd sit down. He gives thanks. He breaks the bread. He gives it to the disciples who he instructs to distribute it to the crowd. There are also some fish that are offered. He gives thanks for those, distributes them to the crowd. And Mark, being an action-centered writer, quickly progresses through this story, naming things like the people ate and were satisfied. Seven basketfuls were left over. 4,000 people were there. Jesus sent the crowd away, and then they got in the boat, and they went to the region of Dalmanutha. Even though the action of the story moves quickly, there's so much depth that I think that we can mine to have a greater understanding of the passage and what it means about following Jesus. One of the things I noticed when studying this is that Jesus is concerned about the crowd's needs, but of all three days that the crowds were with him, this is the very first time that he says, they're hungry and we got to do something. Life with Jesus is like that sometimes, isn't it? This is real talk, friends. Jesus doesn't automatically meet every need, every day, every time we want it to be met. He's not a genie in a bottle that delivers our instant whim at the moment we wish for it. However, he is good and he is faithful even though sometimes we may be a little hungrier than we want to be. We may feel like we're waiting a little longer than we had hoped for. His goodness and his faithfulness drives the compassion that he has for the crowd. And as he's explaining to his disciples his compassion for all the hungry people who are out there in the fields, I wonder what it was like in their little huddle, right? He had called them over and he's like, man, I got compassion for these folks. We can't just send them home. I wonder if it was like them, you know how when you don't want to be called on, you know, in a meeting or if you're at school or whatever, and so like everybody was avoiding eye contact and Jesus like, I have compassion. You're like, please, not me, not it. Or maybe as they're standing in their huddle, their eyes are darting back and forth to one another like here we are again, fellas. He's gonna ask us to do something we can't do. Sure, Jesus, go right ahead. Maybe they maybe they exchanged questioning looks. Maybe they had some eye rolls. I've probably been there, done that. We don't know. We don't know. But I think it's so good and helpful for us to realize the humanity of of these circumstances and not just blow past what actually was happening or could have been happening in the moment. What we do know is that when they respond, they reference the desolation and the remoteness of their place. And this is the red flag I mentioned a few minutes ago. And before we're real quick to judge them, I've got to say this is a human response. Happens to me all the time. I do it. But if we're not careful, it's one that can trip us up over and over again. We focus on what there isn't in a situation instead of what there is. And let me be real for a minute, okay? I am in a season where I feel like there is more to do every single day than I have time to do it. I'm in a season of travel. Between now and middle of November, I travel every single week. I will be gone guess what my kids still need clothes my family still has to eat turns out we have a plumbing issue again in our home (laughs) our pipes in our ceiling are fully exposed and if i'm honest i feel a little exposed right now the problems of the plumbing are exposing the problems of my heart do i trust is there enough Turns out Matthew and I are both preachers and not plumbers. We don't know what the best solution is. And we also don't know if the money that we do have will stretch all the way to the project's completion. The economics are an issue. The economics are an issue for all of us. Hello, right in the middle of inflation. These are the problems of our everyday lives. And it's so easy if we're not mindful to take a look at what we do have to see all that we don't have we miss the sufficiency of christ so let me ask you what about you are you in a place that feels remote and desolate in some area of your life where there are more questions than answers seemingly very few resources for the challenges that you're up against What's that place? Is it finances? Is it a relationship where there's constant conflict and unhealthy patterns keep surfacing over and over again? Is it a relationship that you're still waiting on? Maybe it's the hardship of balancing school and work and social life. It could be a grief that you're facing from a loss that you've experienced or one that you know that's about to happen. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe you're up against the desolate place of loneliness or understanding what your purpose is in life. All these things are real. And Jesus has compassion towards you. So how are you navigating your remote place? A big question for each of us today is the same one that Jesus asked his disciples. How many loaves do you have? Are you looking at the desolate circumstances around you for answers, or are you looking to see what you do have and bring those loaves to the sufficient one who compassionately and miraculously multiplies? See, following Jesus at times can be simple. It's like remembering and bringing and believing But simple is not always easy. The place where Jesus goes after he's finished with the crowd in the Decapolis is not an easy place. And he has an encounter that's not an easy encounter. It's it's such a brief snippet, though, that it makes me think that Mark, the writer of this story, um, tells this story so that he can tell his next story. Um, So here's how it goes. Uh, The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. I find this encounter a really interesting contrast to the encounter that he just had in the the fields in the Decapolis. In the previous story, Jesus was moved with compassion. No one asked him for anything. Nevertheless, out of his compassion, he provided abundantly. Here, he's approached by a group, and they ask for a sign from heaven. They're directly asking, saying, this is what we want. He sighs this huge sigh, like, oh. which indicates he's clearly frustrated, he doesn't seem to give it too much thought before he outright refuses to give them what they ask for. He gets back in his boat and crosses to the other side. Scene over, all done. If Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand that he's the sufficient one, why in this case doesn't he provide? Why doesn't he give the sign? Why does Mark bother to put this exchange in at all. He uses it as an illustration in the next section of Scripture. And in this next section we're back in the boat. A lot of boat in this story, isn't there? A lot of boats. In this section we're back in the boat with the disciples on the way back across to the other side. And the story goes like this. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Jesus says to them, be careful, watch out. Those words are not the exact same in the Greek. One of them is discern clearly, understand, and the other one is be on the lookout be on the lookout, be mindful, attentive to. One is about discerning, one is about attending to. And he says, he says be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. The, the Pharisees represented religious power. They were a religious ruling elite, and Jesus is warning the disciples, be careful of religious power. And he also says in that of Herod, When the pharisees they came to question jesus they didn't come to him with curiosity they were there to test him that word test there is actually can be translated to tempt him and the truth of it is is that as modern day christians we're not immune to the temptations of the moralism that jesus was warning his disciples about it's easy to fall into the trap of believing that how we behave determines our worth or even our belonging with christ Getting caught up in moralism like the Pharisees can be a quick distraction from leaning into the sufficiency of Christ and instead will serve to wield power over or protect a certain status. Whether you're conservative, whether you're liberal, whether you're somewhere in the middle, there are behaviors that we try to use to hold power to protect what we have, to protect our spaces. And so so I'm just going to name a few, and I'm probably going to offend, well, maybe one or two of us, maybe myself included. (laughs) Some of us think it's a really, really big deal to salute the flag. It's a really big deal. And if you do salute the flag, then you're right over here, and you're doing the right thing. And if you don't salute the flag, then you're right over here, and you're doing the wrong thing. So flag saluting, that's one thing in our culture that's a big deal. Uh, Single-use plastics, okay? Some of us, like, we'll try and carry around a water bottle. Some of us don't care. We're gonna single-use plastic all day long because it's easier. Masking, not masking. There's one where we have some difference and where we have some judgment towards one another. Do we mask or do we mask? If you mask, you're good. If you mask, you're bad. If you're this, you're that. You're this, you're that. Do you eat meat? Do you not eat meat? Are you good to the earth or are you bad to the earth these things matter okay let me just say they matter but they're not intended to be held over others so that we can be superior and others can be inferior one of the themes of the book of mark is the expansive nature of the kingdom of god of Jesus welcoming the outsider. Jesus warns his disciples, look, don't get caught up in elevating behavior over belief. All of that is nonsense, it's a waste of time. It actually is contradictory to the kingdom of God. He's not saying it doesn't matter, but it can't be the most important thing. So don't get caught up in it. Watch out for it, be careful. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Everyone is an image bearer. Everyone is beloved of God. God's kingdom is sufficient to welcome even the most outcast who comes to God in faith. That is the message of the kingdom. Jesus also warns the disciples of the yeast of Herod of believing that power held economically or politically is ultimately what will provide. It's no secret that that there is a preferred party of Jesus, right? political party. <laughs> There's not. And it's easy for us to get into that trap of my political party is the one is the one. When we when we hold economic power, economic systems, political systems, As the ultimate authority, things happen. Brokenness perpetuates. Folks who need housing don't get housing. People who need jobs don't get jobs. There's education inequity because I wanna make sure my kids got the best education. So I'm gonna make sure that I move to the best place and have the best schools. And sorry about you over there. If your real estate taxes Don't provide for your schools. There are ways that we systematize things we have, and maybe we continue to systematize things that do not promote the flourishing of every human being. And that is contradictory to the kingdom of God. Why? Because we're worried about ourselves because we're worried about protecting what we have instead of believing in the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus is warning his disciples about that. The kingdom of God supersedes any political party and it disrupts the brokenness of every system that marginalizes humans, that perpetuates inequity, and inhibits the flourishing that reflects the beautiful reign of the kingdom of God. So he says, Watch out for the yeast. It will work its way entirely through your heart and we'll be tempted to not believe in the sufficiency of Christ, but in our own attempts to create and sustain sufficiency for ourselves. And the disciples thought that Jesus was talking about bread. What he wanted them to understand was that he's the sufficient one. He wants them to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Perhaps, not coincidentally, Jesus has just healed a deaf man. Matthew covered that in his sermon last week. He restored his hearing. No coincidence that in this passage he's saying, Don't you have ears to hear? Also, not coincidentally, in the next passage, he's going to heal a blind person. Don't we have eyes to see? Over and over again, Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand that he is sufficient. They only need to trust and look to him. Finally, one of the things I'm aware of in this passage is the patience and the persistence of Jesus. When he's recounting the lesson to the disciples, he brings up the feeding of the 5,000. That happened a couple chapters previous. And he also says the feeding, names the feeding of the 4,000. Two different occasions, same lesson. It's like that in our lives too, I think. I was talking to a, a colleague this week um, who was telling me that he's in a season of learning again in a particular area of his life. And he commented about how God brings us back around sometimes to help us learn a similar ne- a lesson in a new way or to bring deeper levels of understanding, freedom and liberation. Think back to what is your remote place. What's the lesson that Jesus is exposing in your life? Let me remind you that Jesus is patient and he's persistent He brought them back. They did the feeding of the 5,000, did the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus is not in a hurry. He knows you. He loves you. He has compassion on you. He is persistent. Jesus is persistent. And he is patient. He's not going to abandon you. I think we need to remember that. He's not going to abandon you if you don't get it right the first time. His compassion extends to you, and he is sufficient. The Apostle Paul reminds us later on in the scriptures that God's grace is sufficient for us, for God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And i got to tell myself, and I want to tell you all, as my family of faith, God's grace is sufficient for us. It's okay to be a little weak. It's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay to wonder where is that that resource going to come from? Where is the answer going to come from? Where is the help going to come from? It is going to come from God, the maker of heaven and earth, and you will have the opportunity to bring what you have because you are part of the story. You are part of the story. Where do you need to be reminded of God's sufficiency today? Where are you tempted to seize or sustain power instead of trusting in God's power? What is Jesus inviting you to understand this morning? Those are some questions that I leave for all of us, uh, myself included, to consider. And I don't know. I don't know how the, the Spirit is at work, uh, but I trust that the Spirit is. And that, um, that the thing that Jesus wants to invite you into is already exposed in your, in your mind and in your heart. Um, and so I'm going to pray here in just a second, and after prayer we're going to have a time of communion. And that time of communion is the way that we remember, that we come to the table every single week to remember that Jesus is sufficient. He is sufficient. It's the body and the blood of Christ that allows us the opportunity to be in relationship with God. He has already provided. He continues to provide. And so I would invite you to come this morning willing to receive um, the sufficiency of God for whatever it is that you have to face. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for the story of the feeding of the 4,000. Thank you for the warnings that you offered your disciples then and that you offer for us today. Thank you for your patience and for your persistence. God, we ask that you would help us to trust you, help us to, to look around, not at just the difficult things and the things that feel bleak and barren and resourceless, but to remember that you have given us what we need and that you are the one that we need. And we thank you for your amazing and perfect love that made a way for us to know you. And we come remembering. We come remembering you this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name.